0: And while you're turning there, you, you may have noticed that as, as human beings, we, we tend to crave that which we can't have, or we tend to desire the things that are very limited to us. Given that we crave that which we don't have and desire things that are limited to us, we <clears throat> should not be surprised that there is a plethora of Accounts of the so-called missing years of Jesus Christ. You know those years between the time he was born and the time he came on the scene in his ministry. Basically, eyewitness accounts, such as in the Gospels, are very limited, pretty much absent. And so people have said, well, wait a second, we want to know more about what happened to Jesus during between the time of his birth and the time when he was 30 years old and he came on... Uh, on the scene at his baptism and so people have made stuff up <laughs> and and there's a whole lot of stuff out there that's been made up for instance one of the, the more famous is the uh, the infancy narrative of of Jesus given to us in the gospel of Thomas which is a late second century document um, Thomas did not write it by the way um some heretic wrote it. And you don't have to go too, too far to realize that this is not a gospel account. But anyways, it's the gospel of Thomas. And it, What you have is you have a very petulant child, a uh, very petulant Jesus. In fact, he, uh, he calls his father stupid. Um, after all, he's the son of God. He knows more than his dad. So he calls him stupid. He gets mad at one of his childhood friends and kills him. Turns him into a heap of ashes. And and just a a lot of silly things like that. And then later on in about the 5th century, there's an Arabic gospel um, regarding the person of Jesus. And Jesus comes to the town dyer. A dyer is somebody who dyes clothes. That makes sense, right? And so you had your clothes and you wanted them to change colors, you'd go to the town dyer because he had all the colors. And this particular town dyer, his name is Salim. And Jesus is there and he throws all these clothes into this one batch of dye. And Salim gets all mad at Jesus saying, oh, you've ruined my business and you've ruined my reputation. And Jesus says, well, just tell me what color you want each garment to be. And he pulls them out and they pull out that color. And so these are some of the... uh, The writings that we have that have so-called filled in those missing years. And they're all blatantly obnoxious and uh, fanciful. We do have one historic account regarding the life of Christ between his birth and his entrance into ministry. And we find this one account... In the Gospel of Luke. It doesn't give us a whole lot of information. It tells us a little bit when Jesus was 12 years old. And that's about all we have. But somehow, no other Gospel writer considered this of necessity to put in their accounts. But Luke thought it was a such importance that he did include it. And I find it interesting then is what is so important about the life of Jesus at the time of his being about 12 years old that was so important that Luke considered it um, necessary to include in his gospel. So that's kind of where we're going to go today. Is I want to look at the importance of this somewhat overlooked passage of text. And I I wrestled with it. I kept thinking... Why do we have this? What's the importance? And, and you know, as I meditated on it and prayed over it, we learn so much about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ in this. And so here's where we're going to go today. My hope today is simply to look at the account that is given to us. We're just going to read the account, and then we'll just go through and make sure that we all kind of understand what's going on. And then I want to draw out three or four or more um, biblical insights that perhaps... Help us understand the person and the work of Jesus Christ as well as how the person and the work of Jesus Christ impact our lives and how we live and how we minister to our families. And so that's where I'm going to go today. So let's go ahead and um, let's read our text. We'll begin in Luke chapter 2. We'll begin with verse 39. And we'll go through the end of the chapter. So this is the word of God. And when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned into Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom. And the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was twelve years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents did not know it. But supposing him... Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? They did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. And they went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and with man. Our father, we come before you and we ask that you would open our hearts and our minds. To your word. And that you would guide us and lead us, Father God. And that we would be sensitive to your moving, Lord God. Change our hearts and open our ears that we might hear the word of the Lord. For Christ's sake, amen. Well, the first thing we we note is how religious his parents were and it tells us that when his parents went up to the every year to the feast which would be the feast of the passover and every year they they went up to this to this feast this was a difficult journey it was a journey of about 80 miles i assume they went around samaria because Jews didn't travel through Samaria so they went around Jerusalem and this, or went around Samaria so this was a, a journey of about 80 miles probably took about 4 days maybe 5 days to get there they probably traveled in a large group a caravan and so you think it took them 4 days to get there and then the Passover itself was, was a one day feast But then after that there was a feast of unleavened bread and that was about a seven day feast. And so there's eight days basically of feasting and then four more days back. And so think about the hardship this would require for somebody if you were a working person and you had to take 16 days off of your work to go down to worship the Lord. So this was a hardship. So we see a great commitment on behalf of the parents of Jesus. And, and, uh, The scriptures tell us that, and they were there for the full amount of days, which tells us that they were there for the total, the total time, the eight days. See, here's what would happen: is people were required to go to the Passover. All males were required to go to the Passover every year. All right. But they didn't necessarily have to stay for the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So a lot of people would go, and they would go for the Feast of Passover and stay there one or two days, and then they would go home because after all there's work to do. But here we understand that the family of Jesus went for the full number of days. They went there for the full eight days. They considered the worship of God that a necessary component of their life, and they went for the full time. So they, they did more than the bare minimum. They were pious parents. They followed the Lord exactly and they did more than just what was required and what was necessary or what would get them by. Sometimes we say, well, what's the bare minimum? We don't say this, but sometimes our actions betray this. What's the bare minimum I need to do to get into heaven? Will this action keep me out of heaven? Because if so, I won't do it. But if I can kind of, how far can I get before I cross the line? what's the bare minimum I need to do to follow Christ? So we see, first of all, that Jesus had parents. They traveled this great distance to go to the Passover. On their way back, um, they discovered that Jesus was not with them. I can imagine that conversation. Honey, I lost the Son of God. (laughs) I don't know how that goes. I can't imagine the the panic that was set in. God trusted us with the Messiah. And now... (laughs) (laughs) we're in trouble before we get too hard on Joseph and Mary some of you have told me stories of your vacations and you're driving away from maybe a pit stop or or what have you and you get down the road and you've left somebody back at the gas station or back at the travel center. So I've heard stories from amongst you that you know what, we left our grandmother back at such and such a place and we get down the road only to realize I left mom back at the store. So this was a time they probably traveled in a large caravan, probably with a bunch of relatives. I'm sure Jesus was a good child, so they didn't worry too much about him. He wasn't that one who was always getting into trouble, who he always kept close by. But if you kind of wandered and hung out with some family and friends, you didn't worry too much. But at night, when you got ready to eat or got ready to bed down, well, Mary, where's our son? I don't know. I thought he was with you, Joseph. He wasn't with me. I thought he was with you. Oh, no. We lost the son of God. So they return back to Jerusalem, and it says that they searched for him for three days. And there's a couple of ideas on how this was. Did they actually search for him three days, or was it one day they journeyed to, and then found him missing, and then the second day they journeyed back to Jerusalem, and on the third day they found him in the temple? I'll let you guys decide which is most reasonable. But anyways, they find him in the temple after a frantic search. And then we really get to the crux of the story. Because here we begin to learn about Jesus' self-awareness. What does Jesus know about himself and when does he know it? And his parents say, why have you done this? And Jesus replies, why were you looking for me? Didn't you know I would be in my father's house? And they were perplexed by this saying. This is a bold proclamation of who Jesus is. It also tells us Jesus is aware of who he is. And we'll spend a little bit of time on that as we continue on in this message. And they found his words difficult to understand. But here's the a very interesting thing. After he was done with this, or after they they had said this, Jesus went and submitted To his parents. He goes back and he submits to human authority, and then he continues to grow in favor with both God and man. So that's just a basic recap of the story. We're all now on the same page, we're all understanding what this account is about. So let's spend a little bit of time unpacking some of these truths. And to do so, what I'd like to do is to consider, first of all, how how the text is framed. And you will notice in verse 40 we and for verse 52 we see these parallel passages and I think this is going to help us To draw out some of the truths of this passage of text. So in verse 40, the child continued to grow and became strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. And then verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with both God and man. So the first thing we want to note is how this text is framed. It's framed between this idea of Jesus growing and maturing. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? The Son of God growing. Okay, well, we know he grew in physically, but he also grew and increased in wisdom. Well, that's an amazing thing, that the Son of God, the eternal second person of the Trinity, actually had to learn stuff. So one of the things we want to look at then is, how did Jesus grow? How did Jesus... Obtain wisdom? How did Jesus obtain, obtain intellect? Think about this. Here's a... you, you may not always think too much about this, but it's an interesting thought. It kind of blows my mind. And that is that Jesus just had to learn things. When he was two years old, well, let's just say when he was one year old, I don't think he could have given the Sermon on the Mount. I don't think maybe he didn't even speak in complete sentences. He knew basic words of whatever, you know, Dada and Mama and you know in Hebrew or Aramaic. I don't know what the Aramaic is for that. But he had to learn, and then somebody had to teach him. And somebody had to teach him how to read. And can you imagine that maybe as a young boy he walks into his, his father's workshop. His dad's a carpenter, and, and he sees a wood plane up on the counter or hanging on, you know, a peg or something, and says, "Dad, what is that?" Well, that's a wood plane. Well, what do you do with a wood plane? Well, it smooths and fashions wood. That's what. Can you imagine the? Son? He's learning what a. A very common tool is, it's amazing to think that the very Word of God had to learn to read the Word of God. And He wrote it! He spoke it, He originated it, and now He's learning! What does this mean? And the the one who fashioned all of the stars of the universe and called them by name is learning how to fashion a piece of wood for a particular task. What an amazing thought! And the child continued to grow and increased in wisdom and grace of God was upon him, but he kept increasing in wisdom and, and stature and with favor with God and man. The Word of God, Jesus Christ, grew and gained knowledge and gained wisdom. That's an awesome thought. So one of the things we want to look at today is how did the Son of God increase in wisdom? The next thing we, we want to consider is verse 49 because I believe that verse 49 is the central point of the passage. So this is where he says, and he said to them, why is it you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? And so... Here, we consider what does Jesus know about himself and when did he know it? And I suppose it's important for us to understand, maybe it helps us to understand why Luke gave us this passage of text. Remember, he gave us this passage, he gave us this gospel, because he's writing to a guy by the name of Theophilus. And Theophilus is most likely his patron or somewhere something along those lines perhaps help support um, Luke. And Theophilus is a Greek name, so most likely Greek. But it's quite possible that a person like Theophilus might question and want an understanding how it is that a child who is committed to God, who is faithful to the law, could be executed by his own people 20 years later. After all, the cross of Christ is a scandal. And we've talked about this before. You and I, we have it on t-shirts and we wear crosses around our neck and we put bumper stickers with crosses and all of those things. But this was a scandal. You would not say that word around in nice society. You would not say cross or crucifixion in nice society. You didn't talk about that at the dinner table. It was such an abhorrent thing that people people in polite society would say, let that word never be said. And so being such a scandal, it would be reasonable to think that perhaps the office is wondering, how can a guy who followed God's law, who kept God's commandments so perfectly, how is it that he could be executed by his own people? Well, this verse is going to help us to understand because Jesus makes a bold declaration, one that is opposed um, by many. It's opposed by many today. So before we get to verse 49... Let's consider how Jesus grew in wisdom and understanding. Eh, maybe not. Dale, can you flip that? Can you push the the forward arrow, see if you can get? If not, that's okay. First of all, how is it then that Jesus grew in grace and wisdom. As fully human, he grew in very conventional ways. And one way that we see that Jesus grew, and we've already alluded to in our talk, is that Jesus grew by witnessing how his parents prioritized the word of God. I'm sorry, they prioritized the things of God. That they put worship at the top of their list. Even if it required a 16-day journey of no... And that also means little work, no income coming in. They prioritized the things of God. And I know today, you know what? Kids may act bored in church and they yawn. And, oh, I have to go to church and sit. so boring. We need to consider what are we teaching our children through our actions when we gather together on the Lord's Day for corporate public worship. What are we teaching our children? See, here's what Jesus learned. Jesus learned that his parents suspended work and play in order to prioritize worship. That we will set things that are also important, like work, like recreation, like enjoyment, like whatever, in order to go and worship. Our application here is that kids need to see that Jesus is more important than sports, activity, family, and the like. Jesus grew in grace and in wisdom, and one of the ways he grew is by the example his parents set of prioritizing gathering together for the sake of worship. An interesting article by Tom Rayner. I read it a couple of years ago, and this passage text reminded me of it. I think I put the web address in your in your notes. You can look that up. Um, Tom Rayner is uh, he's kind of a statistician. Kind of, are you familiar with George Barna? Sometimes people are familiar with George. Tom Rayner's probably a little. He's kind of like a, a, a George Barna, only a little bit more optimistic. Um, and but he tries to take the pulse of what's going on in the church in America. And one of the things that Rayner points out in in an article um, in regards to the reasons for the decline in church attendance is it's not that there are less people in the church. It's that there are less people committed to weekly corporate worship. Kevin DeYoung also wrote an article regarding this, and he calls them the semi churched. Now, the semi church, here's the bottom line these are people who attend church with great irregularity. These are not nominal Christians. These are not unchristians. These are not, they're not unbelievers. They're not your Christmas and Easter only Christians, your CEOs. These are strong believers who love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They are probably members of the church and they love their church. And they... um, And yet they attend perhaps maybe twice a month. Or they come for a couple of weeks and they're gone for a couple of weeks. And oftentimes it's because there are various things going on and activities and events and so they... are in attendance periodically. I guess my question is this, what are we teaching our kids? What are we informing our neighbors and our friends? See, our kids learn what we teach them. And the people that we are trying to influence with the gospel, they learn what we the exa- from the example that we give them. The bottom line is that gathering every Lord's Day with our church family is one of the pillars of pillars of Christian uh, maturity. If we are to grow in the Lord, we, it is important that we put corporate worship on the Lord's Day together as a priority in our lives. Am I saying that you can never miss Sunday morning? I'm not saying that. Right? I'm not trying to make this legalistic. I know people say, well, you know what? We don't go to church. We are the church. I know that. You're to be in church though. God has called us to be together as a community. All right? That's just the bottom line. You can't get away from Hebrews 10.25. You just can't. All right, There's no example in scripture that would justify Well, we just go whenever we feel like it. Corporate public worship. Your church needs you and you need your church. That's why he gave us a church. And I know you can say, well, you know what, we're not saved by going to church and I'm not implying that. Don't go out of here saying Pastor John says we've got to go to church if we want to be a Christian. I'm not saying that at all. You don't have to read your Bible and be a Christian. There are a lot of things you don't have to do and you can still be a Christian. I'm talking about what does it take to grow and mature and to be strong in the faith and to be grounded. That's what I'm talking about. Because after all, if we are not growing as Christians, then I would suggest maybe you might want to question whether or not you have been redeemed. Because I believe that a a Christian is one who is growing, who is maturing, who is getting stronger. One of my professors wrote an interesting article regarding, he was a baseball player, and he wrote an interesting article, should you allow your kids to to play travel ball? In other words, play on a travel team as opposed to just the local team. And he gave a whole lot of reasons why Um, you should probably just allow your kids to play in the recreational league. But anyways, that's another thing. But one of the things he points out is just, what are you teaching your children about corporate public worship? Because a lot of your travel teams are going to play ball on Sunday morning. And you can say, well, we're going to go to church on Sunday. But you can't count on the schedule allowing you to go to church every Sunday, even when you're out of town. And besides that, your church needs you. He gives a whole lot of other reasons, but he, he says, What are we teaching our kids? When we teach our kids that corporate public worship is not a priority, that there are other things that can take a place, take, take the place of it, and then we wonder when they become 18, 19, 20, 25 years old, they don't prioritize corporate public worship. And we go, Gee, I wonder what happened. I'm not saying it's the only thing. I'm saying that perhaps we need to take steps to prioritize. So I ask. What are you doing to prioritize corporate public worship? Is it a non-negotiable? Or is it, well, we have time today and nothing else planned? If that's the attitude, I would say, perhaps it's time to start prioritizing corporate public worship on the Lord's Day. Make it a priority in your life. How about this? Do you you make plans... What's your Saturday night look like? Be, to be a buzzkill, but perhaps we should make sure that we're in bed in time so that we can get up here. No, oh, we start at ten o'clock, all right? Mm-hmm. Unless you're up uh, till two or three in the morning, you know, we can get up and we can be here. I'm not saying you can't take a vacation or visit family. But Jesus learned and he grew in grace and wisdom. And one of the ways we see is that his parents prioritize joining together with the believers in public worship. And if we are going to grow and become solid, believing Christians, I believe it would be wise for us to prioritize corporate public worship. Well, that's one thing. Here's another way that Christ grew in grace and wisdom He studied God's Word. Well, how do I know he studied God's Word? Well, it seems to me that when he arrived at the temple, he already had a knowledge about God's Word. He had questions to ask, and he even seemed to have some answers. So he seemed to know what God's Word had to say. Once again, I will take this back to his parents. His parents probably taught him God's Word. I'm sure he had his own thirst for God's Word. But he arrived in the temple with a knowledge which indicated his ability to interact with his others. In other words, Jesus had a thirst for the things of God. He wanted to know, who is God? Think about all of the attractions the big city of Jerusalem would offer a young child like this. I mean, he's from backwoods Nazareth, right? Right? And he goes to the big city, so that's kind of like being from behind and going to New York City or something like that, you know. There's all sorts of flashing lights and all sorts of interesting things to see. For myself, I probably would have gone and tried to work my way into Hezekiah's tunnel, you know. It's all dark and damp and there's a river down there and who knows what kind of weird, nasty things are down there. And as a 12-year-old boy, that would have been really fun for me. Of all the things that the big city had to offer the child Jesus Christ, the thing that held his greatest attention was the temple of God, where God was, and where God's Word was being taught. And so, first of all, one of the things that helped, that contributed to the growth of Jesus in grace and in wisdom is his study of God's Word. Now, here's the thing growth takes time. It's interesting because when Jesus comes to the temple and, and he's sitting around and all of these religious folks are leaders or are, they're talking, he's asking them questions. It's a 12 year old boy. By the way, isn't it interesting that Jesus is asking these people questions? You should note, this is the last time we have him record that as asking them questions. <laughs> because 18 years later he doesn't come back asking questions he comes back telling them what the word of God says but where did that where did that 18 years later where did the knowledge from that when he's 30 years old come from it came from him learning God's word and 18 years later he comes back and he tells them exactly what God's word has to say Jesus grew he learned he had a thirst and here's the thing folks knowing God and Maturing in the things of the Lord and growing in grace and wisdom takes time it requires a continual regular feasting upon God's word Jesus didn't just show up there have one meeting with scribes and, and Pharisees and Sadducees when he was 12 years old and then went away and ignored God's word for the next 18 years he had a thirst for the things of God and he knew God's word backwards and forward I know he's the son of God and he's smarter than all of us but he still had to study. He still had to read it. I know he wrote it, but he's still in his humanity and he still suffers the limitations of his humanity and he still had to learn. And it required continual, regular feasting upon the bread of life. So I guess our question then is, what is your plan to increase in the knowledge of God? I'm not saying that any of us are going to learn as quickly or comprehensively as Jesus did, but we still can learn. And we can still become well-versed, pun intended, in the things in, in Scripture. See, one time attendance at a Bible study will not be sufficient if you're going to grow in grace and in wisdom. That's one of the reasons why we ask you to read through the Bible every year. And there are little sheets in the back. Is it because you're going to be, like Earn Brownie points to heaven, or God is somehow going to bestow more favor upon you or love you more? No, God already loves you enough that when you were a sinner, Christ died for you, all right? So he already has loved you enough. Even when you were a sinner, he died for you. He's not going to love you more if you read his Bible. You will discover how great his love is. We do that so that we are regularly in in communion with God and regularly studying His Word. This is probably now, I don't know, maybe the 10th year that Simone and I have read through the Bible together as a couple. I, I'm just fascinated. I just learn new stuff all the time. I see the connection between the Testaments more clearly than I ever have. That's why we need to be... We go to Bible studies. This is why we offer Bible studies uh, as a church. So whether it's Sunday morning... Um, before church at 8.45 or whether it's a Tuesday or a Wednesday or some other time. We offer these things not just to give you another meeting to go to. But we live in perilous days. And I don't know if you've noticed this, but people are dropping like flies. People are abandoning the things of God left and right. How does that happen? I'd encourage you to really uh, commit yourself to the study of God's word. It's good to do it alone. You need to do it alone, but it's good also to do it in in a corporate context with God's people. And it takes time. But the bottom line is this, you will grow. God's word will enable you to grow. We'll just read over here in Luke chapter 6 verses uh, 47 through 49 just a couple pages over, this is what Jesus says. He says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock and when the flood arose and the stream broke against the house and could not shake it because it had been well built but the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation and when the stream broke against it immediately it fell and the ruin of that house was great and so the one who hears the word of God and puts it into practice will be able to withstand in the day of difficulty Uh, one of our theme verses here at the church on Randall Place I think we we established this from the very beginning was a verse placed on our hearts very very early on and it's Jeremiah chapter 17, 7 and 8 and um, it says blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord who's trusted in the Lord he's like a tree planted by the water that sends out its root by the stream and does not fear when the heat comes for its leaves remain and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. I just love that how the the person is portrayed as a tree and even in drought still bears fruit. And then of course Psalm 1 um, which I think is kind of a parallel to that Isaiah passage. Psalm 1 Let's see if I can get there. There it is. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. Notice this. His delight is in the law of the Lord. That's God's word. And on his law, he meditates day and night. Meditate there is just the idea... Of, you just repeat it over and over again. You're just constantly muttering. The idea has the, It's the idea of muttering God's word, speaking God's word day and night. Notice what he is like. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. And I love the contrast, but the wicked are not so. They're like chaff. The righteous who meditate on God's law are like what? A tree. It cannot be moved or shaken. What are the unrighteous like? The one who doesn't do this, they're like chaff. They get blown away. Are you going to be a tree or are you going to be chaff? One of the ways you can be like a tree is to meditate on God's word day and night. Jesus grew in wisdom and knowledge of the things of God. And one of the ways he did it was by prioritizing the word of God. Well, then we get to this Very fascinating verse in verse 49 of Jesus' self identity. I don't know if I'll. Oh, yeah, I've given up on that. It's interesting here because Luke has recorded a number of announcements regarding the person of Jesus Christ. Right? So angels come to Mary and say, Mary, you're going to have a son, and this is what your son's going to be. And then we have shepherds hearing from angelic witnesses about this child born. We see John the Baptist testifying in. In utero of the person of John, of the, uh, uh, the person of Jesus Christ, we have Elizabeth talking about Jesus Christ. We have uh, we have uh, Z- Zacharias talking about the person of Jesus Christ. We have Simeon talking about who this baby is, and we have Anna speaking about who this child is. And so we have all of these numerous witnesses describing the person of Jesus Christ is and now in verse 49 we don't have second hand accounts we have Jesus declaring this is who I am Amen. at birth at 12 years old Jesus knows exactly who he is and what his mission is this is going to be really important for us so now Jesus speaks for himself no angel no prophet no priest no favored woman Jesus himself This is who I am. And so, the framework around this is a question and answer. The question is his parents come looking for him and they say, don't you realize how worried we were? We've been looking all over for you. Why would you do something like this to us? That's a fair question. We all would have said the same thing. Jesus' answer is amazing. His answer is, why did you even have to look for me? Didn't you know where I would be? You should have known exactly where I would be where I was going to be. Of course I was in the temple. Of course I was in the place where God is worshiped and where God is studied and where God's presence is. Why would you even need to look for me? And here's a very interesting thing that Jesus says. He says, "Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house?" Not just I was in my father's house, or didn't you know I was going to be here? I had to be. It was necessary that I be in my Father's house. First of all, Luke uses this term, had to be or it was necessary when he's setting forth the mission of Jesus. And you can see a couple of references there. These are all the things where Jesus says, it is necessary. It is necessary for the Son of Man to to be crucified. It is necessary for the Son of Man to do such and such. It is necessary because these are all things that outline the mission and purpose and person of Jesus Christ. And Jesus is now, this is the first time he uses that phrase, it is necessary that I be in my Father's house. And here... When Jesus says, I had to be in my father's house, we, also, we learn that Jesus did not come to do his own will, nor even the will of his parents, but he came to do the will of his father. And Jesus now declares the necessity of being in God's house. It is the place where God's presence resides and where instruction of God is given, and I had to be there. And Jesus sets God, his father, as his priority, even above his parents. God's purposes are first. The Father's purposes come first. Jesus understood His mission. He understood that God was His Father and juxtaposed this against Joseph as His Father. This is no slam against Joseph. I believe Joseph was a very good man. Joseph did a great job. This is the last time we hear about Joseph in Scripture. I'm sure Joseph was a good, holy, and righteous man, but he was not Jesus' Father. didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? He is not just the Messiah. He is the Son of God. There is a filial closeness with the Father that is going to become a stumbling block for many down the road. But here we answer that question, why is it that a child who loves God and keeps his commandments can be crucified 20 years later by his own people because of this statement right here? God is my Father and I am the Son of God. There is this personal awareness of God that finds expression in worship and learning in the temple as well as in private communion with the Father. So Jesus knows exactly who he is and Jesus knows what he's doing. Twelve years old. This is important for us because there are a number of heresies out there and this passage of text refutes two very prominent first century heresies but they're also present in, in our day and age today. And the first one is the heresy of, it's called docetism. I think that's in your notes. Just a fancy word. But it basically it denies the, the humanity of Jesus. You need to remember that today we often argue for the deity of Christ. And people have no problem with Jesus being human. But in the first century, people struggled with Jesus being human. They had no problem with his divinity. If you said Jesus is God, they'd say, yeah, that's not, no problem. What they had a problem with was his full humanity. Because they believed that matter was evil and spirit is good, and so Jesus could not be material. He couldn't be human flesh. He had to be a spirit being, so he only appeared to be human. The second one is this strange idea called adoptionism. And adoptionism we, was also popular in all the first few centuries of the church, but we've seen it resurrected quite a bit today, especially, um, well, even, even amongst Christians who don't take seriously God's word. But adoptionism is simply this, that Jesus was a regular child and that he became the Son of God at his baptism. Or perhaps some people would say he became the Son of God at his crucifixion or he became the Son of God at his resurrection or he became the Son of God at his ascension. doesn't matter. At some point he was just a regular guy like you and me and he lived a good life and that at a certain point in time God the Father adopted him and made him his son as a special son of God. And that is outright... Heresy, and right here, Jesus is saying that's just not true. I'm the Son of God, and 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 perhaps, like I said, it's probably rare in Western Christianity today, but we do find it in groups that have a low Christology. Perhaps people say, oh, you know, me and Jesus, we're just kind of the, we're kind of, he's just kind of like us, and he became the Son of God at a certain point in time, and we also can become like that. We can follow that same example, and we would see this sometimes in the. Um, there went a thought right out the door. <laughs> <laughs> but caution. The groups that have a low view of the person of Christ can think that Jesus became the Son of God at some point. He is the Son of God. He was the Son of God at birth. He is the Son of God at 12 years old and Jesus knows it but here's the interesting thing then it says then that he went home with his parents and submitted to them wow first he says I'm the son of God now he goes home and says what do you want me to do mom are there any chores I need to do dad wow what an amazing thing that the son of God humbles himself underneath the authority of his parents because he is fulfilling all righteousness So now he goes home with his parents, he submits to them, and he continues to grow in wisdom and grace and favor with both God and man. He continues to learn about what it is to be a child, a human child. This is a really important passage of text. We learn quite a bit about the person of Jesus. So I'll conclude with this. A couple of things we learn about the person of Jesus. First of all, Jesus is the true man, fully human. That he grew and he developed. It was necessary for our Savior to be human to, to represent us in his sacrifice. Because a man had to die. Because if a man had sinned, man had to pay the penalty. God didn't sin, God didn't have to pay the penalty man sin man had to pay the penalty Jesus Christ fully human capable of bearing the debt as a human being but Jesus is also divine as the true son of God see here's the problem he had to be divine because while man owes the penalty man doesn't have the means to pay only God has the means to pay and so Jesus Christ fully human dying in our place fully divine having the means to to meet the obligation. Only only God can pay the debt. So we have the true man, fully divine, fully human, all in Jesus Christ. And at 12 years old, he knows exactly who he is and he knows exactly why he came. And finally, we see that Jesus grew. So my question to you is this, are you growing? Are you growing in maturity and grace and favor are you growing in the wisdom and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Are you, are, are you growing in the things of God? If so, what are you doing to facilitate that growth? How can you keep doing it? How can we encourage you as a church to maintain that growth? If you're not, what needs to happen? He's happy to sit down and talk with you what needs to happen so that you can grow and I don't care how old you are and I don't care how long you've been a Christian you never ever stop growing in maturity of Christ you will never have the knowledge of God's word that Jesus had at 12 so if 12 year old Jesus probably knows more about God's word than you do you and I need to grow and the moment you stop growing is the day you start slipping backwards so what are you doing to grow Help us as a church to facilitate your growth so that we can be disciples, so that we can mature and be people who are strong. So Jesus is the true man, fully human. He is truly divine, the Son of God, and he also had to grow, and so we also need to grow as well. Let's stand and let's pray.